Thank you, Tracy and uh, worship team for just a beautiful time of coming before the Lord in song on this Easter morning. We are celebrating today with believers all over the world the fact that Christ celebrated the week of sacrifice. He gave himself on the cross for us. He instituted the Last Supper where we today observe communion service. He went to the cross. He died. And on Sunday morning, we celebrate the resurrection. He is risen. I like this. I've never seen the clapping thing before. Well, that's an appropriate modification. Thank you. Wow, what a beautiful thing. Um, I will apologize in advance. I've been saying this for a few weeks, but my allergies remain in full bloom. So I'm a little sniffly this morning, and I'm not sick. I'm just uh, suffering. How many of you have allergies, seasonal thing? Yeah, boy, we just pay for living here in the Willamette Valley. Uh, in spring. And some of you have a different schedule than I. I always observe about three weeks of just misery at the beginning of spring, and then I'm pretty good from then on. And I've had many of you tell me that you have different cycles and seasons that are expressed in that. If you, uh, if you have a Bible or if you want to grab one from a chair back in front of you, I'm going to, this morning for our Easter message, turn to a passage that's a little bit different uh, we are going to be in the book of 1 John, and I've titled my message this morning, This is Love. I want to ask a question. I'm going to ask you to be honest with me. It is church after all. Have you watched a Hallmark movie on television? Put your hand up if you've watched a Hallmark movie. I will say, I think I remember like having having a winter flu or something and being stuck in bed for days of misery. And there's, there's nothing more appropriate than mindless TV watching through the misery of a sickness and watching just film after film after film. They, they tease a little bit. If you've seen one, you've seen them all, right? They kind of have a similar plot that rolls through. And some of you might be aware of this, but I confirmed this this week. There is a website called the Hallmark Movie uh, Plot Generator. And all you have to do is type in the name of two lead characters, and then you keep hitting reset, and it'll just give you the plot of a movie about those. I chose the names Joe and Sally. So here we go. Plot, Hallmark Movie Plot number one. Joe, a romance novelist with writer's block, and Sally, a celebrity chef suffering from a bad review, accidentally end up staying at the same French villa for the summer. As they attempt to share the house and mend their personal lives, they find that what they're really missing is a more personal matter. Hmm, I wonder what that might be. Here's, a, here's another one. You just hit the button as often as you want. Here's another one. Two single parents come head to head when their kids want to adopt the same dog. Agreeing, finally, to co-foster, Joe and Sally must work together to find the dog's forever home. Hmm, I wonder where that would be. And on and on it goes. I have bad news for you, though. Love is not the outcome of every movie plot. Somebody say amen, right? I don't care what channel it's on. Love is not always going to be the end of and moral of the story. Love is much too complicated for that. 
But for our Easter message this morning, I want to turn to a biblical description of love that I think is just so amazing, and it's in 1 John chapter 4. In this little letter, the Apostle John is going to express, in fact, in in this chapter, beginning at verse 7 and going down through the end of chapter 4, John is going to use the word love or some derivative of this word like 24 times. And as you read these verses, love is like the wrapping of the gavel on the table, saying, I'm trying to get this concept into you. This is what love is really all about. And this morning, I want us to look just at the first four verses of this section, verses 7 through 10 together. And I want to start off with where John will begin. In fact, let's just read these verses together. You follow along in your Bible. I'm reading from the ESV translation, but you follow along in whatever translation you have. It's probably very close to this. Here's what John says, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this is love, or in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I could continue, but I want to stop there. And I want us to look at what I think are two very simple yet profound points in this instruction from the Apostle John. And the first one is this, that God is love personified and God's love is personified, as John will explain, in us. He says in verse 7, beloved, that's a description of those who are loved by God. This is a description of the people of faith. John is writing to people who have put their faith in God, and John tells them, you are the beloved, the beloved of God. Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John is telling us in this verse that the love of God comes alive in his children, that those who know God love others. This is a principle of God's design for the world that we live in. If you open yourself up to God's love, You will then become a conduit of that love to others. And I can't think of anything more practical in our divided world today because I think this sentiment is the solution to the divisions that mark our existence today. You might say, how can I grow to love other people? And I would say to you, you do that by putting your faith in God. It starts with loving God. When you love God, God puts that love that he has inside of you, and you become a beacon and a beam and a conduit of God's love to others around you. This is how we love across the dividing lines of our society. 
And this is a lesson that God had to teach me in the earliest days of my faith because as a teenager, I had a deep-seated hatred in my heart. Let me explain. Uh, my family, my dad was a career Navy guy, uh, served our country for 20 years. I was born and raised in uh, Southern California, and dad's final duty station in the Navy, we were transferred from Southern California up to the Seattle, Washington area. I grew up in a place that was very divided. In fact, L.A. would be much too kind of a description because we didn't live in L.A. We lived in a place called Oxnard. How many of you have ever heard of Oxnard, California? Yes. And I distinctly remember as a 12-year-old boy in the late 70s leaving, leaving there and moving up to the Seattle area, and I remember the racial division that marked that culture in those days. Uh, the town that we lived in was, was very bland, very dry, lots of concrete, lots of asphalt, and we moved from there up to the Puget Sound area of the Pacific Northwest where there was nature and mountains and trees and lakes and rivers, and it was the complete antithesis of what I had seen. We moved there in Christmas of 1978, so I went halfway through sixth grade in Southern California, and I enrolled at the beginning, at you know the end of Christmas break. I started at a new school in Washington State, so January of 79. And as a 12-year-old, you're just starting with a clean slate, so you got to make new friends friends, and you got to figure out who you are, and plus being 12 is kind of a tough age anyway. Do you remember this? And so we're going through all that change. Something that happened in my young life was we moved to the Seattle area at the time when the Seattle Supersonics were one of the best teams in the NBA, and they won the NBA championship shortly after we moved there. And for me as a 12-year-old boy, this was the first time that having interest in sports was a thing. And so as an adolescent kid new in the area, I grew with this great fondness in my heart for the Seattle Supersonics, for Jack Sigma and Gus Williams and Dennis Johnson, and John Johnson, and downtown Freddie Brown, who was on the team. And these guys won the championship that year, and there was this fervor in the broader culture, and I just got swept up in it for the first time. And that began to perk in me an enthusiasm for sport, and Seattle also at that time had a pretty new NFL franchise, the Seattle Seahawks. And so as a new kid in the area and a young, uh, just beginning middle schooler, I watched as Jim Zorn and Steve Largent and later Dave Craig took the Seahawks into the season that year. I remember watching our running back, Kurt Warner, 
I remember watching the incredible defensive line of Jacob Green and Joe Nash and Jeff Bryant, who were just menaces on the field. And I got to watch all of them, and I got swept up in that. And as I learned to have this new love and loyalty and enthusiasm, I also very quickly learned that while these were my Northwest heroes, there were, there were bad guys who were in the leagues too. There were the enemies of my good guy teams. And I got to learn at a young age that while I could cheer on my Seahawks, that the worst team in the league by far who represented all that was wrong and brutal and gruesome wore the colors silver and black. And their flag was a mockery of a skull and crossbones. And if there was any act that was brutal or criminal, we could attribute it to those guys. I learned to hate teams like the New York Yankees because with their big payroll, they would buy all our best players and rack up yet one more championship. I hated them for that. And I somewhere along the journey also came to put my faith in Christ and I had God's love sown in me and I had to reconcile that with the most unthinkable notion that could be that someone who named the name of Jesus and loved all that was good and right and true could somehow unthinkably like the Raiders. <laughs> made no sense to me. And yet I met these people who loved Jesus and loved the bad guys of sport. And I had to reconcile, and I had to ask myself, Tim, you know, when I came to this church, Tim, do you love Nelson Zarfus? <laughs> A Raider fan. Uh, the first youth pastor that I hired, Joe Castaneda, a Raider fan. Later, Kevin Hearn came, a Raider fan. I hate those guys for that, but I do love them, right? And I had to work this out in my heart. I, I, I tell you that story to ask you this. Who is it hard for you to love? Come on, where have you struggled to love? There's no lack of examples in our current culture because we have lived through the pandemic. John tells us that God enables us to love as he loves. And God loves both liberals and conservatives. God loves Republicans and Democrats. God loves independents and party members, amen? And during the pandemic, we tended to draw lines and we said, if you are blank, and we would fill in that blank with some different labels, if you are that, then you can't be my friend. You can't be someone that I will hold closely to. One of the worst things that happened in the last few years is watching churches where people of faith were fractured from brothers and sisters in Christ based on political affiliation or pandemic response. People walked away from 30 and 40 year relationships with one another because of, well, you fill in the blank. And I would say this, we have to do better than that as a church. That, that was not a good look for us. What about 
family strife. Have you ever gone through a division in your family? I want to tell you that God enables you, if you're a person of faith, God enables you to love even when you've been wronged by someone. It's always going to be true that those who are closest to us have the capacity to hurt us the most. A careless comment is shared, and people in a family share it around the gossip circle, and people take sides. A divorce occurs, and people rally to one person or the other, and families are split apart. Somebody gets their feelings hurt, and we take sides in the family. Earlier in this letter, John expanded on this truth in this way. He said, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This is what God, this is to be the telltale sign of people of faith. That if you love God, if you have a relationship with God, that you're a loving person. It's not unclear what the scriptures expect out of us. You may say, yeah, Pastor Tim, I know. I should be more loving than I am. I'm, I'm working on it. But someday, I'll, I'll do better. But right now, I just can't love blank. What name goes in that blank for you, Christian? Who is it that you struggle to accept or to respect or to love with the love of the Lord? I know that this struggle is real because some of us grew up with deep-seated biases that were sown into our heart from an early age. And to this day, you struggle with it. But you know what, Christian? God can give you the capacity to love those whom you cannot in your own strength love. Because God's love is stronger than your prejudice. God's love is stronger than your stubbornness. God's love is stronger than your weakness. And the promise of the power of the love of God flowing through you is so strong that in the next verse in our passage, John will add this description. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, if you find yourself incapable of love, the reason just might be that you really don't know God. Because if you did, God's love could work powerfully in you to the point of overcoming your deepest biases. This is a sobering thought, but the principle is nonetheless true. Knowing God enables you to love others. Later in this chapter that we're looking at, John will expound it even to a greater degree. At the end of chapter 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. How clear is John being 
with the people to whom he wrote this letter. Listen to me. If you name the name of Jesus, if you're a person of faith in God, you have to love other people. You can't be strangled by prejudice and bias and unkindness in your heart. And for goodness sake, if I can love a Raider fan, I have to guess that you can love someone whom it's hard for you to love too. This capacity to love the unlovable is a reflection of God himself in our lives. God, who is by very nature perfect and sovereign and over all things. God, who needs nothing. God, who doesn't have ambition to fulfill or goals to attain. Yet, in spite of all of that, God chose to create human beings and to love them. More, even when they rebelled against him and deserved eternal death, God chose to love them still and provide a way for their salvation. And that is why God became a man in the person of Jesus. That is why Jesus paid for the sins of the world, all of it on the cross. And again, in another part of our New Testament, the Bible explains God's love in this way. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is why we sing songs like Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Would Die For Me? Because God's love is personified in the life of his children, those who believe in him. God's love, John is telling us, is personified, and in the next two verses, he's going to show us God's love is also proven in the life of Christ. And he says, first of all, in verse 9, that God's love is proven in the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. That shows the love of God. Look with me at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was God's great exclamation of his own love for us. The manger was a humble platform in which the greatest news of all time was declared, and God said, I love you. And it happened in the birth of Christ. John says, the love of God was made manifest it was exhibited in the coming of Christ so that we might live through Christ. God took the first step to prove his love by sending his only son into the world. Look at that word in the third line of the verse, that God sent his only son the word only is a translation of, it was, this verse was originally written in the Greek language. And, and the Greek word that comes into our 
English as only is a very unusual word. It's very distinct in its usage. The Greek dictionary defines that word this way. It says pertaining to what is unique in the sense of being the only one of the same kind or class. What was the kind or class that the incarnation represented? It was humanity. Jesus became one of us. But even in becoming a human, he was unique, the one and only of his kind. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This very same kind of unusual Greek word is found in perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. Would you read from the screen with me, John 3, 16? Let's read together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life that God gave his only son. God's purpose in sending the unique, one-of-a-kind son was that we might live through him. And this is where faith operates. Living for God or living for Christ or being a believer, it all starts with an doorway decision. And that doorway decision is when we put our faith in him. It's when we come to a point in life when when we say, God, I know you're real. God, I know you're there. God, I've known about you a long time. I've I've always kind of sensed that you were there. But now I'm saying, I know that you are there. And I believe in you. And I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are. And if you're God, it's okay with me for you to be God in my heart. That decision is the entryway into life as a child of God. God allows us to make that kind of decision for him. And when we make that kind of decision, one of the telltale signs is that we are given a love for others that no one would understand who knew us before. It's the kind of love that changes us. Not only was God's love proven, though, in verse 9, the coming of Christ, but in verse 10, it is proven, it is evidenced in the death of Christ. And I want to put this verse up here from the NIV. I'm preaching from an English Standard Version. These are very close, but there's one key difference, and I want to note it by showing you the NIV on the screen. NIV says it this way, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The ESV says it this way, and sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. How many of you have heard of this word propitiation? Like this is one of those $10 church words, right, that we never use in regular life right? Last time you got pulled over by an enforcement officer, I have to imagine that you didn't look at the person in the passenger seat and say, well, now how am I going to make propitiation with this officer, right? We just don't talk this way anymore. But it's a very cool word 
that's worth understanding. The NIV took that word and, and translated it in their uh, version as, and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. Sacrifice is a gift, and atoning means it covered something up. It, it, it remedied a problem. The word propitiation is an unusual word, and it's a word that literally means this, to appease someone's wrath. This is a word that came to us out of Greek culture. Uh, Greek culture was was really built upon Greek mythology. And in, in the Greek mythological world, the Greek gods were very easily angered by humans. And so the humans were constantly having to try to appease the anger of their gods through some kind of sacrifice made. And when they would appease those gods, they were making what they knew as propitiation. It's this Greek secular word that got brought into the new faith of the, of the church as it began. And the authors used this word of satisfying the wrath of a god to describe the God of heaven. This is a concept that's really tough for people to accept today. People who live in this world, if they were to discuss this concept, is God wrathful toward sin and sinners? And if you ask the average person, they would say, I, I would never worship a God who was that way. I would never worship God. What kind of selfish, egotistical God would need to be appeased in any way? If that's what he's like, I want nothing to do with him. It's as if they would say, here's what God ought to do. He ought to wave his magic wand over all the sins that happen and just forgive them. If he was really a God, he would do that. That's the logic that I have, friends who have expressed to me. How do you respond when someone says something like that? Uh, here's how I respond. <laughs> okay, you, you think that it would be more godlike if he waved his magic wand and just absolved everyone of everything? That's exactly, if I was God, that's what I would do. If he was a good God, that's what he should do. And I say, well, let me, let me answer it this way. We live in the state of Oregon. And in the state of Oregon, people are held to account for their transgressions of the law. And the state of Oregon has been home to a number of mass murderers, serial killers. Let me ask you this, why doesn't the state of Oregon just wave its magic wand over all the serial killers and absolve them of any guilt or accountability for their actions. And the response is that would be an egregious transgression of justice. And I would say, I actually fully agree with you on that. And in the same way, there is a transgress, transgression of justice in a global way because if God is God, and he created this world, and he set the boundaries and rules in place. And when we transgress his rules, it's unthinkable that we would squawk about the consequences that would come. Because God is no less just 
than the state of Oregon. You know, there's a theological thought for you, okay? <laughs> God is no less just than the state. Why would we put on God something that we would never put on our society? Here's what the Bible says. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, was achieved in the death of Christ. John said it this way, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, for our sins. This word propitiation is another very significant, kind of unusual word. It only occurs four times in the New Testament use of it. It's, it's used repeatedly in, se- in the secular Greek world, but in the Bible times, it was only used four times. One of them occurred earlier in this same letter. In 1 John chapter 2, John wrote this. He, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, Jesus' death was the satisfaction of God's wrath, not just for the sins of the people who had believed in him, but was sufficient to pay for the sins of the billions of people who will ever live on planet Earth. So weighty was that payment that it was sufficient for the total bill of all humanity throughout all eras of time. You say, how could that be? And I'll tell you how that could be. It's pictured in this. The Romans were experts at punishment. The Roman Empire had called execution to a fine art. They performed these executions so that the prisoner who was guilty and was crucified would not experience the luxury of a quick death. It was a death intended to draw out every fiber of justice on the transgressor. Victims of crucifixion would live for days on the cross. They would die not from blood loss. They would die not from thirst. They would die from suffocation because as the human body hung on the cross through spikes in the wrist would hang down and as that criminal would be weakened through beating and through deprivation and through suffering, he would hang to the point that the pressure of the muscles on the diaphragm would push the lungs down where they couldn't take a breath in. And the only way that a victim of of crucifixion could breathe again was to push all the weight of their body up on that single spike through the top of one foot and then through the second foot and into the cross, and they would push all their weight up on that one spike so that they could (gasps) gasp enough gulps of air to then sag down again and be deprived. Propitiation of the sin of all mankind in part was due to the expertise of the Roman government. They 
called execution into an art in their day. But more than that was the spiritual reality beneath it. Because Jesus was not just man, but he was God. Jesus was man who had never sinned. He was the unique one of a kind, only son of God in this way. The only person who ever lived perfection. Perfection paid, making propitiation sufficient not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world. If you, like people that I know, struggle with the concept of the wrath of God, I would simply submit this to you. The Bible is God's word and it tells us that God is a God of wrath. We may not like it, but it is absolutely what the scriptures teach. Here's another use of that word propitiation from the book of Hebrews. It says, therefore he, speaking of Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is his incarnation at humanity. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and make propitiation the satisfaction of God's wrath for the sins of the people. Here's how Paul describes God's wrath. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is a hard concept. I, I, I understand, this is a hard concept. But I'm here to tell you that if you believe God's word, this is what God tells us is the reality. God is angry with sin, and he's angry with sinners. Now you say, wait a minute, Pastor Tim. You've been telling us all morning that God loves us. This is love. If God loves us, how is it that God could be angry with us? And I'd say that is exactly what I'm saying, that God loves us, and he is angry with us at the same time. And if you need to have that concept explained, if you're married in the room, please look at your spouse right now. Is it possible to love someone and hate them at the same time? Answer? Yes, it is. Unquestionably. And if that is possible for you and me, is it not logical that that's possible for God? Can God love us and have hatred toward our conduct and behavior at the same time? Answer, yes. Unquestionably, that is possible. And yet, while God does have wrath or hatred for sin, because sin is a violation of his laws and his laws demand that justice be done, God must punish sin because God is just. But at the same time, God is merciful, we are told. And God is willing that sinners not receive all that they deserve for their sin. Even more than merciful, God is love. And his love extends to all people. And God desires that all people would experience spiritual salvation. 
that there is nothing any of us could do to earn God's forgiveness for our sins, but this is where God's love and grace come into the picture. God did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. He paid the price for our sin, and it was satisfactory, and that was the instrument. That is why Easter is the greatest holiday for people of faith because we are reminded what was paid for our sin. There's one more time in the Bible that this word propitiation is used, and it's in the book of Romans. And here the Apostle Paul says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God had showed patience for thousands of years up to the time of Christ's propitiation, his sacrifice on the cross, which paid for our sins. Jesus' death was the means of our propitiation. God's wrath was satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. His payment of our sin was accepted, and the justice of God's wrath was satisfied. This is what John is telling us. And again, another translation of this same verse. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice. That's the word propitiation. To take away our sins. This marvelous act of God on our behalf is why Easter is so special. It was the justice of God fully satisfied, the wrath of God fully turned away, sufficiently paid for in the death of Christ. Is it no wonder that we celebrate the resurrection? And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this Easter, we acknowledge that your love was shown in a vivid and beautiful way when you sent Christ for our behalf. Thank you that he died on the cross for us. Thank you that we don't have to pay the penalty of our own sin, but that as if we could, but that Jesus paid it perfectly and you were satisfied. Justice was meted out, yet love reigned that day. We thank you for the victory sign of the resurrection, the fact that Christ's resurrection proved he was God, proved his victory over sin. Lord, we thank you for all of that, and we pray this morning that the intent of John's letter would be that we would understand that we need to be a loving people in this day. 
God, I can think of no more practical answer to the divisions of our culture than the love of God being exhibited in our lives. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I would say to you this morning this, if you're here and you've not yet turned from your sin and turned in faith to God, you need to make that decision. God doesn't force it on us. He gives us the freedom to choose. And if your choice today would be to receive God's love and forgiveness by faith, I'm here to tell you that this would be the beginning of the rest of your life because God would long to work out change in you that you've never envisioned before. No matter how far away you are from God, it's always this one step of faith back to him. Won't you make that step even now? You can do that in a moment of sincere prayer right where you're seated right now, right with your head bowed. You don't have to say this out loud. God will hear your heart. But if you mean it, then I invite you to pray along with me this Easter prayer for beginning a new life with God. Say to him, Father in heaven, I come today to respond to your love for me. And Lord, I know that I have been far from you, that I have not honored you or pleased you. I've done my own thing. And I come this morning asking, God, will you forgive me for that? And Lord, I want to live differently, but I need your help. So God, I'm declaring this morning that I believe in you. You are real, and I want you to be God in my heart. Lord, will you help me to live differently from this day forward? Help me to find victory that I've not been able to find. Help me to love those I haven't been able to love. You promised you would, God. I'm asking you to do that in me. And Lord, I'm here to tell you that I do believe in you. I believe in Jesus and his death on the cross. I believe that he rose again. And I'm asking you to forgive me and change me. It is in the name of the Lord Jesus that I pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. amen. In your bulletins this morning, in the offering boxes that are at the back wall on your way out, we're also receiving our Easter offering today. We started this a few years ago at Easter, taking a special offering to give away. And we've given, uh, we've given away tens of thousands of dollars to uh, people in Cuba and in Mexico and last year in the Ukraine. And this year, our Easter offering is going to start a new church in Salem this next year. And I invite you to join me in giving sacrificially to that. There's an envelope in the uh, bulletin that you could use for that, or you could just mark your check, Easter offering, and drop it in. And if you weren't ready today, we'll re be receiving this offering through the end of the month as a gift to give away as a part of the goodness of God to us. Thank you for being here. Tracy, let's continue our worship. Let's stand and...